Jewish audio on Kavan.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Schirus, renting, employer-employee, and now we're learning the laws of the renter. What if one rents an animal? And in our world, we have similar laws. When one rents an animal or even a car, what may be done, what may not be done, where you may go, where you may not go. Are you leaving the state? Are you going on difficult terrain? Aleph 1, Hasechad, somebody rents. Esachamera, donkey. The intent, the specified intent and purpose of this rental is to lead it, Bahar, along the mountains. He's going to lead it up to Mahal and Driver. And in fact, he led it not through the mountains, but in the valley. What is the deal with the valley? Number one, the valley is usually flat. Number two, the valley is usually warmer in the summer. The mountains are cool. The valley is warm. So, if the donkey slipped, well, it's more likely to slip on a mountain than it is in a valley. So if it slipped in the valley, he's not liable. Potter, he's exempt. Even though he transgressed the intent of the owner, the knowledge of the owner who said, you're renting it to go in the mountain, and he went in the valley. However, there's no reason that a donkey should slip in the valley more than on the mountain, on the contrary. However, but if the animal became overheated, aha, the animal will become more overheated in the valley than it will in the mountains. is culpable. Vice versa. Now, he rented this animal to lead it, but in a valley. What is a valley? Flat terrain, but warm. And he led the animal in mountainous terrain, difficult terrain. If the animal slipped, is culpable. Because animals slip more on mountains than they do in valleys. So, the guy thought you were renting it for a valley, and you took it in the mountain, it slips, your fault. But if the animal became overheated, property is exempt, because the valley would have been a lot hotter than the mountain. Because the heat in the valley is more I mean, than the mountain. Why is that? Because usually at the top of mountains, there's a breeze, there's wind, which cools off the mountain area, mountain wind. However, if the animal got overheated, not because of the temperature, because it was difficult for the animal to ascend, that elevation, chayov, then he's culpable. And kolka or anything similar. Now, back then it was quite common for a person to rent animals and a plow to plow his field. <coughs> the plow in the olden days was a very basic plow. In Talmudic times, a plow consisted of a heavy beam drawn by a cow or other animal. At the end was a cylinder with a blade used to break up soil and create furrows. So that's how a plow worked. Somebody rents a cow. To plow on the mountain. Mountain is a difficult terrain to plow. In fact, he used the cow and the plow to plow in the valley, which is more flat, easier than Kankan. And what happened is the cylinder of the plow broke. What is a kankan? That is the part of the plow. That does the actual plowing. So the question is, who is responsible for breaking this plow which belonged to the owner of the cow? One thing is for sure, the renter is exempt. Why? Because the renter rented the animal and the plow to plow in the mountain, which is a tough terrain. In fact, he went and plowed in the valley, which is easier. So the renter did nothing wrong. The owner of the cow and plow should litigate and sue the workers. Because maybe the workers did something that they shouldn't do as they were plowing. Or maybe they did what they should do. If they did what they shouldn't do, they're liable. If they did what they should do, they're not liable. So if anybody is liable, it's the workers. Either they did something wrong, and that's why the plow broke, or they didn't, and it just broke out of old age. And similarly speaking, they didn't change the intent of the owner, who said mountain or valley. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. And the plow broke. So, the owner did nothing wrong, the renter, the owner of the cow and plow, can sue the workers. Either they did something wrong or they didn't. Next scenario, this cow and plow was rented to plow in the valley, which is a flat area of the and in fact, plow in the mountain. And here the plow broke. Here the renter is liable. What are you taking? My plow, which I told you you can have for the valley, and you're taking it up in the mountain. And let the renter of the plow cow now go and sue the workers. Either they are culpable or not. Now he says, what is in fact the law? What is the liability of the workers? In general, what would be the liability of the workers? Shashibru, who broke the plow, the ace, Kharisha, at the time of plowing. The answer is, in many cases, they have to pay. Okay, a plow is run by several workers. Who should pay? 
The one who holds the utensil while plowing, because if he had not forced the blade so deeply into the ground, maybe the cylinder would not have broken. If, however, the field had several plateaus and several levels, then both workers are liable for the cost of the cylinder. Which workers? The one holding the guiding pole? And the one holding the utensil, as we just pointed out. Along the same lines, Gimbal's quarter, if he rented the cow and plow, Lodush to thresh, the kidneys, beans, the dosh, and it threshed, the tua grain, the huchlika, and it slipped. Butter is exempt, because beans are more slippery than grain. He rented it for beans. It slipped with grain, he's exempt. The tua, but if he rented it to be used for grain, the dosh, the kidneys, and in fact, he threshed with beans, Chayav is culpable. Shaha kidneys, machlekes, because beans are more slippery. There's a story with a fellow. He rented a donkey to his friend, to his fellow, the Omarlai, and he said, Listen, this donkey you're renting of mine, I want you to know something. I know your destination. There are two ways to go. <clears throat> One way is through a ravine that is always flooded in this season. And the other may be a little longer, but it's dry. Don't go where the floods are. <coughs> Do not go with this donkey using the root Nahar of the river of Pekod, Pekod River. Because in this season there's water. You should go the Narash ravine. Why? Because in that ravine, there's no water. The guy was a wise guy. He went to the in the one he told. He went to the ravine. He told him not to go to. And guess what? The donkey died. But there was no witnesses that can testify how he went. He himself says, I went with the ravine of Pekot. And I'm telling you also, there was no war. The reason the donkey died has nothing to do with war. He just died. Being the average witness can testify that there is water in this season in that ravine. Because he changed the instruction of the owner of the donkey. Where there are witnesses. In other words, you can check the National Weather Report. You'll see if there is water or there isn't water. Where something is obvious and there are witnesses, you cannot use the logic of, why would I lie? Bring me the chumash with the measurements, please, if you can find it. If somebody rents an animal, to bring upon it 200 liters of wheat. He rents an animal to deliver 200 liters of wheat. Let me just check the chumash here. No, I don't see it here. Okay. 200 liters of wheat. So he says here that a litra is a Talmudic measure equal to the weight of eight and three quarters sloyim, approximately 168 gram in contemporary measure. So the 200 litra would be 33.6 kilograms. I was looking at the Chumash because he gave more of an American measure in the Chumash. Okay. And he delivered upon this animal 200 liters, the same weight, of barley, not of wheat. Now the Gemara, Baba Metzia, page 80b explains that when it comes to barley and wheat, there is a 15 over 16 ratio. 15 measures of barley take up the same space as 16 measures of wheat. So that barley is heavier, but it takes less space. Chayav is culpable. When the animal died, Chayav is culpable. He's liable. Why is he culpable? Because the additional volume is more difficult to carry. And barley takes more space. So also be hired to bring grain. Maybe Mishkola Tevin said he brought straw. The same is true. Abel, but if he rented it to bring barley, baby, Mishkola Kitan and brought wheat, or Mason died, Potter is exempt, because that would not stress the animal more. So everything similar, because we're talking about the same weight but different volumes, and volumes could also be a challenge to animals. Now, what if somebody rented an animal for a man to ride on the animal? The tradition is that men control animals better, they're more experienced riders. A woman, a woman is not that experienced usually. She may be dainty and she may be delicate. So there could be a difference between how well a man or a woman would control this animal. If the contract read that he's renting the animal for a man to ride on, so the renter, the owner, is assuming the man knows what he's doing, even though the man weighs more, but he knows what he's doing. He's forbidden to use it for a woman, because the woman might not have control of the animal. The animal can get hurt. 
What if he rented the animal? Isha for a woman to ride on. He may change it to a man. Even though a man is heavier, but he knows how to control the animal more. That's the, the thesis here. Now, what kind of woman are we talking about? Any type of woman. A petite woman. A heavy buxom woman. Even a nursing mother with a baby. That's going to be tougher to carry the baby and, and control the animal. He rented it for a woman to ride on. All of this would be included in, in the category of a woman rider. What if six? Somebody rents an animal. And the deal was that he would carry, that he would transport upon this animal. Mishkel, you'll do a specific known weight. Whatever it is, 100 pounds. And he added weight. So the question is, how much did he add? The litmus test here, did he add a 30th? So let's give an easier example. Somebody rented an animal to carry 30 pounds, and he carried 31. So he added a 30th. 1 over 30 is a 30th. Well, so the animal died because he added a 30th or more, or 32 or 33. He's liable, because that's the measure that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. Pachas mikan less than that, but he's exempt. Exempt from today or tomorrow, who's he has to pay the extra weight charge because usually the weight is specified. You exceed that weight over a 30th, you got to pay. So, I'm sorry, you exceed the weight at all, you have to pay. If he rented the animal without definition, you have to carry the maximum weight allowed in that area. You know, we, we have highways here, and the trucks have to go into scales because there are rules as to how much a truck can carry. But if he added more than a 30th, again, for example, the norm is to carry 30 of whatever weight, but he carry 31. Umeisan died and Yishbarot was injured. Chayav is culpable. So also the same law would apply to Sfina Vot. Where more than a thirtieth of the weight was added, the tovan the boat went down, the boat sunk. That can ruin your whole day. Chayav l'shal and domei has to pay the money because he exceeded the acceptable weight of the agreement or the acceptable normal weight. Now we talk about a porter. What is a porter? A porter is a very strong guy who schleps things. Hakos akotov a porter. Chayav almasoi kavach the porter as a rule. I only carry ten pounds, twenty pounds, whatever the deal is, and the guy pushed pushed the limit. He added. But who's the said the porter got injured. You exceeded the pounds. Chayav in the customer is liable to pay the porter for his injury. You could say, wait a minute, this guy is an intelligent human being. If it's too heavy, say so. He could feel that the load is too heavy. Why did he agree to carry it? The answer is, perhaps, maybe it felt heavy because he wasn't feeling so good. But he was afraid to say it is heavy because he doesn't want to alienate the customer. The customer should have weighed the load before he put it on the border. The closing paragraph of this chapter. If somebody rents a donkey, what's the purpose of the rental of this donkey? The purpose is to ride upon the donkey. So it is implied, say the notes here, that the donkey's owner will lead it and he'll ride on it. The question is, what can go on the donkey? Can the guy put his eight pieces of baggage on? Like today, you go on an airplane. What is permissible and what's not permissible? How much luggage can you take? You can place upon it what's a given is like an airplane today. Your personal garment. That's fine. Ligina his flask of, of, of water. And his food bag. The customer is entitled to carry a bag with his garment, his overgarment, his food, and his drink because the donkey owner will not stop at every gas station to buy food. So I'm entitled to bring food for the road. The road. But more baggage than that. The donkey's owner can say, wait a minute, more than your coat, your food and drink bag, your own personal bag you can't take. You want luggage? Hire another donkey. We have donkeys for luggage. So also the donkey owner can load barley, but heaven and straw, mezenas, the food for the donkey. Of that day, not of the whole journey. More than that, the renter could say, hey, don't load my donkey up at your junk. Yeah, but I need food for the donkey. Well, every inn, every hotel, every inn, every motel, motel, I didn't know motel was here. Every motel has donkey food. Because in every place, you know, there's gas, food, lodging, donkey food. The people, therefore, remain from the Ayin if there is no place to buy, he can place his own food the food of his animal for the entire journey. Because here's the guy leading his animal. There is no food, so he's entitled to have the food for himself and the donkey. Now, all of this debate, the all of the above, the Seich is with an unspecified agreement. Just somebody rents. In a place where there's no known rules and regulations. 
a place where there is known rules and regulations. More important than the general consensus is what the custom is, what the prevailing attitude is. End of chapter 4. You shouldn't press it twice. You've got to press it once. Rambam, Mishneh Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Schirus, renting, leasing, and later employer-employee. Pedic Hamishi, chapter 5. Now, by way of introduction, to help us understand the matters that we will be studying here, and this is not that long of a chapter, but quite a complex chapter. Let's take something in, in, in the modern day and age. You rent a car from Hertz Rent-A-Car, or from Avis, or from Budget. What are their obligations to you? What if you're renting the car to go to the Grand Canyon, and the car breaks down? Are they obligated to give you another car? Are you obligated to fix their car? What's the deal? And the same goes for many other renting and leasing situations. And again, as I explained earlier, today we have a bonus factor in life, and it's called insurance. But back then, they didn't necessarily have insurance. So what is the obligation of the owner to the renter, of the renter to the owner, the thing breaks down, and so on and so forth. And of course, if you're dealing with a live animal, there are many things that can happen to a live animal. And these are these very interesting laws. We then segue into a boat. What if somebody hires the services of a boat to transport his merchandise from point A to point B? The boat sinks and the merchandise sinks. Well, what happens? Who owes who what? And then he rents a house, and so on and so forth. Okay. Paid Khamishi chapter 5. When somebody rents an animal, and according to many, this scenario is, I am renting you this animal. His name is Morris. So the animal took ill. So the animal went mad. The animal went Michigan. Back then, the king used to send his soldiers out to the road to take whatever animals he needed. They would stop the guy. They would say, get off your animal. Thank you very much. We'll send you a receipt in the mail. So the guy's animal was taken by the king, by the government. What they call it? Eminent domain. So the question is, who's responsible for what to who? There is the owner and there is the renter. The renter, all he's trying to do is get from point A to point B or transport his load on the donkey from point A to point B or what have you. Even though in all, in all probability, once the government takes this animal, they'll never come back. As long as it was taken on the road, meaning that the government, the king, would send people on the road and tell them to take whatever animals you see. They wouldn't knock on people's doors and take from their barns. So in fact, it is the renter who took this animal on the road. Maybe the owner can say to the renter, you're responsible because of you, my animal got taken. Or maybe not. Says the Rambam, the owner can tell the renter, my animal got sick. My animal went bad. My animal was taken by the king. This is the animal you rented. It's yours. Take it. Do whatever you want with it. It is sick. It isn't sick. It is crazy. It isn't crazy. It was taken by the king or not. It's your problem. And he has to give him an entire amount of rent. Why? Because the owner, in this case, provided what he said he would provide. The use of this particular animal. The fact that something happened to this animal is not the owner's fault. And again, I bring the question in the introduction. You rent a car. Whose fault is what? And who has to do what for whom? Now he says, and he qualifies this, does this law apply? When the renter rented this animal to transport a load, that if the load falls, nothing happens to it. It's not a fragile load. So the animal is not feeling well, or is a little bit crazy, or what have you. It's not so terrible. If the purpose of this rental was where the renter is going to ride on this animal, you can't ride on a sick or crazy animal. Or the purpose of this rental was to transport a fragile load, like glassware and crystal and so and what have you. In that case, being that these conditions were specified, I'm going to ride on the animal, I'm going to transport fragile objects on this animal, he has to give him a replacement animal. If he rented a donkey, he has to give him a replacement donkey. What if the owner does not provide a replacement animal? Again, Hertz has to give me a replacement car. What if they don't? Then the rental fee paid must be refunded. But the owner could say, hey, you rented my car. You rented my animal to go 300 miles. You went 100, pay me for the 100 miles. That makes sense. So the rental fee should be prorated if there is value in going the first 100 miles. There may not be value, maybe in the middle of nowhere. So this is the beginning of this set of laws. And again, there are many notes telling us what other halakhic authorities say, what the Shulchan says, and what various commentaries of the Rambam says. These are very complex laws. Base too. The plot thickens. Mesa behemoth, what if the animal died? And Yishbara was injured. Bein sheschora, losses, whether the animal was rented to bear a burden. Bein sheschora, or to ride upon it. In Omar if the owner said, I am renting you a donkey, not a specific donkey, but I am providing a donkey for you. It's like Hertz says, I'm renting you a car. Yes, I prefer the town car, but hey, 
I need a car. I need a donkey. I don't think they make town cars anymore. Then, because that's the deal, the owner has to prevent them, has to provide rather another donkey. Because I rented a donkey. What if the owner doesn't do it? I'm sure everybody has been in that situation. You rented a car from a car rental company. They're supposed to provide another car because your car broke down, but they're not doing it. Why are they not doing it? Why is a crooked letter, as my mother would say? In this case, the one who rented the animal can go sell the animal. You have a dead animal or an injured animal, you sell it. You use a Craigslist. You can purchase another animal with the money you get with the proceeds. There isn't enough money to buy one, you rent one, you lease one. If there isn't enough to purchase, the bottom line is, is that the renter has a right to get to his destination. The owner is not producing, well, you can help him produce. You sell his carcass or you sell his animal or what have you, and you replace it or at least you rent something. Until you get to the place that you got to. What if the owner said, I am leasing, I am renting this animal to you, his name is Moshe. This animal, Morris the donkey. If the guy rented it to ride upon it, or to transport a fragile load, and Morris the donkey died halfway, this is a problem. So the guy is stuck in the middle of nowhere without a donkey to ride on or without a donkey to transport his fragile load. If there's enough money in the carcass to purchase another animal, maybe lesser quality. Let him do so. But if there isn't enough money, then he goes out and rents one, even if he has to consume all the money of the sale. Until he gets to his destination, that was agreed upon, because in the rental agreement it said, I'm going to the Grand Canyon. But if this carcass doesn't have enough value not to buy and not to rent another animal, in that case, the guy is stuck halfway in Arizona. What is he going to do? Then he has to pay him the rental fee of half the trip. What do you mean half the trip? I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere. What good does this do me? All he could do is have complaints. He can put a note in the complaints box. But more than that, you know there's a complaint box where you can put all your complaints? But more than that, this is not going to be a successful lawsuit. What if he leased or rented the donkey for transport? Being that he said, this donkey, the renters looked at the donkey and said, I like this donkey. It looks sharp. It looks strong. And it died. Halfway through the journey, being that they said this donkey and Chayav he does not have to replace it because you rented this donkey. This is the donkey you got. It died to make a eulogy. El Anaisen leis Chorei Shalchatzi Adera. He gives him the rental of half the journey. Umaniach leinu bilasi, and he leaves him the carcass. And there's not much more he can do because this was the agreement. This donkey. Moving again, these are very complex laws, and I'm just I keep moving. Gimel Asecher Asafina. Now we move to boats. Somebody hires a ship. The understanding that I have is he hires the ship, and the owner of the ship is in charge of the sailing. He's the owner. He's the transporter. Somebody leases a ship along with the guy who's going to uh, sail the ship. And halfway to the destination, guess what happens to the ship? It goes down, way down. It sinks. Now, this is a problem. I rented a ship from you. We have a contract. And I took my load of expensive wine. We will serve no wine before it's time. I put it on the ship. And now the ship and the wine are at the bottom of the sea. This is a problem. So who owes who what? They can both go to the bottom of the sea and have a drink. If the owner said, The usage of this particular ship I am providing to you, and the renter, lease the use of this ship. To transport. Wine. I need the use of your ship, the services of your ship, to transport wine. Even though he paid him, you should return all the money that was paid. Why? Because he didn't fulfill his agreement, his, his obligation. Because he can say to him, You bring me the ship. I rented, I leased this ship. I want this ship. Well, this ship is at the bottom of the sea. Of the sea. Well, that's your problem. I rented this ship. I like the way it carries wine. I like the refrigeration and so on and so forth. I'm just kidding. They didn't have refrigeration. Our agreement says, you provide ship. I provide wine for transport. I'll bring wine. I don't know where, but I'll get wine. You provide the ship. Obviously, the guy can't provide the ship. But if he told him, not this ship, but I am leasing a ship to you, services of a ship. And the renter in this case said, I am transporting this particular wine, Burgundy from this and this year. Or Cabernet Sauvignon. Even though he didn't pay him any rent yet, he has to give all the amount. Because he said, this ship, you rented this ship. Enjoy, it's at the bottom of the sea. Because he says, bring me the wine. And I'll give you a replacement ship. He can't bring him the wine because the wine is at the bottom of the sea. So this is the opposite scenario of what we just learned. 
The trouble of half the journey, you can't compare somebody who's paid to work to someone who's paid not to work. In this case, he gets paid less because he's been paid not to work. Next scenario, if he said to him, I'm renting you this boat. And the renter rented to transport this wine. The boat was specified. The wine was specified. If he gave the money of the rental, he can't return it. He can't demand this return. If he didn't give it, he doesn't have to give it. Because this guy cannot deliver the ship. This guy cannot deliver the wine to be transported. So neither can perform. And therefore, it is what it is. That is, if it was specified, this ship, this wine, however, if the rental agreement said, a boat for wine transport, then they meet in the middle, they divide halfway, since both of them have the potential to fulfill the contract and neither wants to. Moving right along, what if somebody leases, rents the usage of a ship, and in the middle of the journey he says, never mind, I changed my mind, and he unloads his load. I guess they stop at, a, at an island or whatever, and he says, that's it, I'm out of here. Being that the renter made a commitment for this entire journey, the fact that he elected to abort the agreement is his problem. He has to pay the entire agreement. Now we get into something else, which is a very important issue in today's world. What about subleasing? What if the renter found someone to sublease the use of the ship until the destination agreed? He can sublease. What do you mean he can sublease? The owner of the ship says, I lease to you. Well, the owner of the ship can put a note in the complaint box. But that's all he can do because he has a commitment and the guy found a replacement for the customer. So the guy was a good businessman. He sold the entire load en route. So halfway through, he sold his load. It's what we call flipping an escrow. And then he descended off the ship. And the new buyer comes and says, Hi, I'm the new buyer. Are you my sailor? Are you my ship transporter? The ship owner takes half the rental fee, half the transport fee from the first guy. And the second half from the second guy who bought the load en route. Now, the owner of the ship, what does he have that he can do to his client who rented, who leased the ship from him? The answer is complaints. That's all he can do is complain. What is the offense? What's he complaining about? Because he has to now tolerate a new personality. Maybe the guy's obnoxious. Maybe he's difficult. Maybe he has body odor. Whatever the situation is. So therefore, the most he can do is complain. So also, all similar scenarios. Hey, number five. Now the Rambam goes and stretches this and says, I, the Rambam deduce from this. From this I can deduce the following scenario. So then when a person rents or leases a house to a client for a certain time, let's say you lease a house, it happens every day. You enter into a one-year lease or a two-year lease or whatever the deal is. You know, it's not a joke, by the way. When you're going to sign a lease, make sure you talk to your lawyer because leases are not joking matters. I mean, you could move to Texas and the guy could sue you and you'll probably lose. You have to fulfill the conditions of your lease. You can't walk away from a lease unless your lawyer wrote it in such a way that you can't walk away from the lease. So when you rent or lease a house for a certain period of time, and the renter, the guy who rented the house, wants to sublease. This happens every day. You find yourself caught in a lease, you find someone to assume the lease. Is that okay or is it not okay? That's a good question. The answer is yes. Subleasing is okay. Provided that... That the number of tenants do not exceed the original number. So if the first renter had a family of six, then the sublease guy also has to have a maximum of six. But if he's got a family of 27, because he's got a lot of cousins, then he can't sublease. Because the volume of the tenant will determine the damage to the house. As we know. However, says the Rambam in his scenario, if there are only four in the family of the tenant, he can't sublease to a family of five. Because our sages did not say, the rule that someone who rents cannot sublease elevate alpha, that applies to movable objects, because movable objects are very delicate things. Because he says to him, I don't want my object to be in somebody else's domain. And we talked about this earlier. What if you rent a car from Hertz? Can you rent it? Can you sublease that car to someone else? The answer is, of course not. Read your contract. It has to be immediate family, spouse, or whatever. You can't sublease the car to your first cousin. Hertz says, I don't know this guy. I didn't check him out. That is for a movable object. When it comes to real estate, or even a ship, because in that case, the owner of the real estate is there. The owner of the ship is there. He's the sailor. You can't say this. You can't say, I don't want another tenant in my house. Check out the tenant. His family is not any bigger than mine. And the same goes with the ship. Similarly speaking, says the Rambam, logically it appears to me 
If the owner said to the renter, Listen, Mr. Renter, I understand that you want to terminate the lease. I understand. I understand you're bringing me someone to assume the lease, to sublease. I understand. But let me ask you a question. Why do you need to sublease my house to someone else? I'll tell you what. You don't want to stand by your lease. Say, go. Go home. And leave it. I'm letting you out of the lease. I just don't want nudniks in my house or in my boat. I don't know the guy. Have a good day. I'm not going to sue you. By the way, don't believe him. Make sure he writes it down. You know, oral agreements are worth gunished with a capital G. In this case, he cannot forcibly sublease this to someone else. Because the guy is saying, go, I'm not holding you to the lease. In fact, the Rambam brings a verse, a, a beautiful verse from Shlomo Amelach, Proverbs chapter 327. She this would be included in the teaching of the wisdom of King Solomon. Don't hold back good from the owner. The owner is giving you a good deal. He's not holding you to the lease. Then cooperate, be nice. Instead of subleasing, which you're allowed to do, better yet, just walk away from the lease that he's allowing you to do. Leave him his house. Now, says the Rambam, there are those who rule. That he can't sublease at all to anyone else. The Yitin Shoyat saves money and he has to pay the rental fee until the end. And of course, it all depends on agreements and local commitments and so on and so forth. But says that it doesn't appear to me that this is a true law that we would prohibit him from subleasing and make him pay the money. It doesn't make sense. And again, there are many, many details that are involved in laws of this type. Vov 6. What if he tells him by his animosity law? Listen, I am leasing this house to you. This is the address. And after he leased him the house, after he rented him the house, this particular house, the house fell down. That's it. Fell down. You released my house on. 6 Main Street, and the house on 6 Main Street fell down. Enjoy the lease. Does the owner have to rebuild the house? And that's a good question. In our world, it depends on what the agreement says. It depends on what the local custom is. Here, says the Rambam, the guy does not have to rebuild it. But they have to prorate the rental. They have to calculate how long he was there. And if he doesn't want to rebuild, he can just give it back the unused rental money. Which means the renter cannot force the owner to rebuild. What if the owner has no money? But if he knocked it down, he demolished it. The owner goes and demolishes it. Here he has to provide another house. Or he has to rent another house. You have to provide to the renter because he went and demoed it. What if he does better? Mr. A rents his house to Mr. B, and then during the rental period, he goes and sells it to a new owner. But this owner is not a nice man. This new owner, it shouldn't happen like it happens. He's an idolater. He's a, a mafia nick. He's a bad guy. I don't mean that the mafia is bad. Some of my best friends are in the mafia. I'm from New Jersey, remember? Where the guy undid, reversed the rental agreement of the first, because he's in the new owner. He can do whatever he wants. You don't like it? As they used to say, do me something. He has to provide. Who's he? The first Jewish owner has to provide a replacement house. Or other similar scenarios. What if he rented just a house to the guy who rented? The owner rents a house. Not a particular address. A house. After he gave it to him. He has to rebuild it. Or he can give him a replacement house. What if the replacement house was smaller? The original square house, the house was 5,000 square feet. The replacement house is 1,800 square feet. Well, that's a problem. Still, the renter can't stop him from giving him a smaller replacement house because that's life in the big city. But who provided that? That it is called a house. He can't give him a hut. He can't give him a cardboard box under the freeway. Because in his rental agreement, he didn't say, I am providing a 5,000 square foot house for you in Beverly Hills. He says, I'm providing a house for you. The first one happened to be 5,000 square feet in Beverly Hills. The second one happened to be 1,000 square feet in Pacoima. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if he said to him, I am renting you a house like this. Or as they say in Montreal, like this. He has to give him a replacement house, the exact same shape and square footage of the house that he showed him that he's renting to him. He can't change horses in midstream, as they say. Then He cannot tell him, my intention was not that I'm going to give you a house of 5,000 square feet in Beverly Hills. My intention was it's going to be close to a river like that one is. So I'm putting you in Reseda, right next to the LA River. Or to the downtown marketplace. So I'm putting you in San Fernando next to the marketplace. next to the house. No, you can't play that game. He has to give him a replacement house according to that size and according to that shape. He's got to do the whole deal. Therefore, if it was a small house, the original rental was a small house, he shouldn't replace it with a large house. Commentaries explain some people don't like large houses. It takes too much effort to clean. It takes too much effort to maintain. What do I need 5,000 square feet if I'm fine with 1,800 square feet? Godel, if he 
promised him a large house by Yasser, he should replace it with a small house. Echad, if he promised him one house, by Yasser, he shouldn't give him two houses. Shnaim, he promised him two houses. By Yasser, he shouldn't replace it with one house. By Yasser, he shouldn't have a reduction of windows. The guy says, I like sunlight. I can overlook the ocean. We shouldn't have too many windows that we can structure. There has to be a common agreement. Everybody has to agree that what's going on makes sense for everyone. Ches, the closing paragraph of this chapter. We've learned many times that there's the concept of an aliyah. What is aliyah? Aliyah has many meanings. Not when you get called up to the Torah. That's not what we're talking about. An aliyah could mean a second floor. An aliyah could mean a loft. An aliyah could mean an attic. An aliyah means the floor on top of the first floor. Hamaskin aliyah stam. If somebody rents an aliyah, let's say a loft, and then for some reason the loft is not usable, he has to give him a replacement loft. Omar Levi told him, Aliyah Zu, this loft shall now be by his on top of this house. I am leasing to you a particular loft. In that case, well, the commitment that the owner made to lease the loft to this loft to this particular person sort of obligated not only the owner but the house as well. Because it's the loft, the second floor, to the first floor of this house. The pick up, therefore, in Nibchaso Aliyah, if something happened where the house was, became smaller, the square footage was reduced, a problem developed, the Arba Tvachim with three, with four rather, handbreaths or more, Chayav well, the owner has to correct it, because you have light, some, some event has reduced my square footage. And what if he doesn't correct it? Well, you know what? The renter who rented the loft can move downstairs. He can say, guess what, Mr. Owner, you got company. I'm moving into your spare bedroom. Why? Because the house is subservient to the loft that the guy made a commitment, and now the loft lost its square footage. Now the plot thickens. Oh, you stay there were two lofts, one on top of the other. So there was a house, let's call the house the first floor. Then there was a loft, let's call it the second floor. Then there was a loft, let's call it the third floor. And the guy was on the third floor, and his square footage got reduced due to an event. Whatever, the floor fell through, whatever the deal is. Then he moves into the second floor. The second floor gets reduced. So the question is, is the third floor only connected to the second floor, and does the subservience only go to the second floor or the first floor as well? And he says, we're not sure in whether we can only live in the second floor or even in the house. Why? Because his original commitment was the third floor. The people, therefore, he should not live. But if he moves in and he says, I don't care, I'm in, we can't force him to go out. This is one of those classical examples where he doesn't do it, but if he does it, you can't remove it. Because this has to do with an unresolved issue in the Gemara. Now the Rambam concludes this chapter with a story. As I said in the introduction, this book has lots of stories. My son, there is a story, the Echad with a fellow, Shalom al who said to his friend, Mr. A said to Mr. B, listen, my friend, Dolis Zu, or Zay, Shalgabe, Haparsik Hazeh, Ani Maskiloch. There was a vine, like we have Hollywood and vine. There was a vine, a grapevine, which was draped over a peach tree. This is interesting. There was a peach tree, and over the peach tree was a grapevine. And the fellow fell in love with that setting. He says, I want to rent it from you. I love this vine draped over the peach tree. Oh, wonderful. So he says, I'm renting it to you. Good. So everybody's happy. The neck are Haparsik, you came, suddenly, the peach tree was unrooted. No more peach tree. So you have a vine suspended, I don't know, in the air. So the question is, what happens with the obligation? I rented your vine suspended over your peach tree. Now there's no peach tree. Well, what about my contract? And the question came before our sages. And our sages told the guy who rented it to him, you better find the peach tree. As long as the vine is there, the peach tree has to be there. It's not there anymore, you better find one. So also, or similar agreements. What's the message here? You have to keep the commitment because the commitment was the vine as it's draped over the peach tree. So the peach tree becomes subservient to the vine and the owner has to replant it. But of course, if it was chopped down, that's a whole new ballgame. And again, there's a lot of detail to all of this. We're not going into all this detail. End of chapter 5. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Schirus, the laws of renters and other laws. Perek Shishi, chapter 6. And these are very important laws we encounter every day in our world. What is the right of the renter? What is the right of the landlord? What is the obligation of the renter, of the tenant? What is the obligation of the landlord? What is the contract agreement? How long is the term of the agreement? What does the term mean? And so on and so forth. Aleph 1, Hamaskir Somebody rents a dwelling, an apartment, to someone in a large building. Let's say you rent an apartment or a condominium to someone in a large apartment building. There are common areas and so on. He could use the protrusions protruding out of the walls of the larger structure for four cubits, which means up to four cubits, he can make use of them as well. And in the 
garden of the courtyard, in the backyard, in the building. So again, the issue in modern terminology is what common ground or what common grounds does the tenant of a large building get to use? So he says any protrusions, any stuff coming off walls, yards, courtyards, gardens, they're all for his use as well. In the local, if the local custom is that people could use the thickness of the walls as well to store things on and in, he can make use of the thickness of the walls as well. For example, if you have a stone wall, it could be a foot wide. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do in a wall that's a foot wide. Now the Rambam says something we learned many times earlier. And all of the above matters, we follow first and foremost, the custom of the particular locale. The Hashemis Hayadu'in Lohem and the terminology that is used in the locale, very similar to what we have said repeatedly in the laws of selling and buying. What did you sell? What did you buy? It depends on what the local custom and the local terminology is. Based to if somebody rents out his courtyard and he doesn't define what courtyard means, the fact that there may be a barn in this guy's courtyard does not mean that he rented the barn to the fellow, because barn is a separate entity. Now, what responsibility does a landlord have to provide the tenant with a usable housing? If somebody leases or rents a house to a, to a fellow, part of the obligation is, and here he goes into a list of stuff you need for basic living. The first thing you need are doors. It's not acceptable to rent a house to someone who doesn't have doors. You have to have operable working windows. You can't have windows that are broken or that are dysfunctional. And you have to strengthen the roof. And to support the beam that may be holding up the whole building. So you have to put supports in. The last is neger umanol. You have to put in a bolt so it could be locked from the inside. Manol is a lock, so you can lock it from the outside. Otherwise, you can't call this a house if you have no, as they say in Australia, privacy. You need privacy. All of the above and anything similar, the dvarim of various lists of stuff, which are stuff that tradesmen and craftsmen do. You need a door hanger, you need a locksmith, and so on, a roofer. This is a fundamental aspect of being able to live in a house or in a courtyard, is that it has doors and windows and locks and bolts and ceilings and roofs and beams and so on and so forth. You know, the world we live in today, there's something called a slumlord. A slumlord means he owns the building, and you're paying him rent, maybe, and the place is falling apart, and nothing works. And the doors are broken, and the windows are broken, and so on and so on and so forth. This is not acceptable. This is the law. These are the basic, fundamental necessities of a house, of a dwelling. On the other hand, there are certain obligations, which are the obligations of the tenant. The tenant, Chayib is obligated to make maka. Maka is a parapet or a fence, a gate, around a flat roof. If the tenant decides he wants to use the roof, it is the tenant's obligation to make sure there is a gate or a fence. Or mezuzah, it is the tenant's obligation to put a mezuzah in, or put a mezuzah on. It's not the landlord's responsibility. Or the sakin mokin mezuzah it is the tenant's responsibility to create the place for the mezuzah to go, specifically speaking, of when you have stone dwellings, like Jerusalem stone and others, where you're going to put the mezuzah. So they would hollow a place into the stone to affix the mezuzah. Who has to do that? The tenant. So also, Imrotso, if the tenant desired Lassi to create sulam, an access ladder, a, a marzev, a latiyah gaga, or I guess drainage, or slanted roof, so the water drains off, all these improvements would f- fall into what we would call today tenant improvement, where the tenant does this stuff, but the basic obligations of the landlord were enumerated above. We learned similar laws earlier. If somebody rents a loft, what is a loft? Second floor to another fellow. And the floor became diminished. It became open for four square handbreadths or more, reducing the square footage. So now the guy has a smaller loft because a hole developed in the floor ceiling. You know, my floor is your ceiling. The landlord has to fix the ceiling and the floor. Because plastering the ceiling becomes a support for the ceiling, which is the floor for the second floor. So this has to be repaired by the landlord. Now we learned a lot of this stuff earlier. And in today's world as well. You know what is a big business? Manure. Manure is a massive business. You know, you would think manure is something that's terrible you got to get rid of. Well, that's true too. But you can also become wealthy from it. The manure, the dung. That accumulates in the courtyard. Who does it belong to? Does it belong to the tenant? Or does it belong to the landlord? In simple terms, it belongs to the tenant. Because it's his manure. 
from his animals or what have you. The peacock, therefore, the top of If he doesn't want it, then he has to take responsibility to get rid of it. Some people like the manure; they make money from it. Some people use it for fertilizer. Other people don't like it, so they have to call a refuse company and they got to get rid of it. However, if there is a local prevailing custom as to whose it is, we always follow the local prevailing custom. When does the above apply? Where the animals who created the manure belong to the renter. Then there is this whole debate. And we say it's the renter's manure. It's his privilege to use and his responsibility to get rid of. But if it is the landlord's courtyard, and the animals creating the manure belong to other people, and they're just wandering into the courtyard and contributing to the manure, in that case, it's not the tenants. It is the landlord's, because it's his courtyard. And here he invokes a principle we learned earlier. Because a yard belonging to someone, as long as it's a guarded yard, acquires the stuff that's in it, whether he knows it or not. Even though the house related to the yard is rented by someone else. Next, six. If somebody rents a house, a chotzer or a courtyard, a merchetz or a bathhouse, a chanus or a store, a business, a shar, other places, and he rents it for a certain term, a month, six months, a year, two years, nine years. There's a clear term. How long is this lease for? Which in our world is common. You want a lease? How long? The question is, what happens at the end of the lease? The end of the lease, the landlord comes and says, I'm really sorry, I hope you're moving out. Because the tenant is moving in tomorrow. The guy says, hey, what are you talking about? I didn't know the lease was ending. He says he could just force him out. He can evict him. You should have known the lease is ending. The ain't a is not obligated to wait even one hour. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because the lease had a term. Because it clearly gave a date. On the other hand, what if the renter just rented a house without definition? How long for? There was no term defined. If he rented it for the purpose of sleeping there, Lilina for sleeping, well, there's a minimum term when you rent a house for sleeping. It's at least one day. You know, people go on vacation. They rent a vacation home for one day. They rent it for a weekend. Shvisa comes from the word Shabbos. At least two days, Friday and Shabbos. If they, went, if they rent the house for a wedding party, it used to be common that people used to rent the house. And they used to make the wedding and the Sheva Brachas and then the bride and groom would live there for a period of time. What's the minimum time for a wedding house? Minimum is 30 days. So these are undefined terms, minimums. One night, if it's a regular rental, two nights, if it's a weekend rental, 30 days if it's a wedding rental. Zion now comes what we call in our world month to month. You know, when your lease expires, you're month to month. One month at a time. What does it mean, month to month? That sounds nice, but what does it mean? It means if you want me out, give me a month's notice. If I'm leaving, I'll give you a month's notice. That's what month to month means, in case you didn't know. I'm just kidding, everybody knows. Zion, I'm asking by Yislachavet Islam. If somebody leases or rents a house to another without definition, without a term, he can't evict him. Until he informs him, he gives him notice 30 days. What's the purpose of this 30 day notice? I'm glad you asked. In order for the tenant to search for a new place. He shouldn't be cast in the middle of the road, as somebody I say, you know, as somebody I know says, we're going to live on a park bench. You don't want to live on a park bench. You want to live in a house. So that's 30 days notice. Well, the safe population at the end of 30 days, following the notice, Yates say he goes. Now, interesting law. This law doesn't work well in California. When does this apply in the summer? When a person can move. But in heavy winter days, in stormy winter days, when snow and rain and so there's a commonly accepted rule that people cannot be evicted from F, from Sukkot to Pesach, from October to April. Why? Because it's rainy season, by the way, in the world we live in. The biggest moving time is June. The biggest, the best time to sell a house, May, June. Because in the winter, people aren't moving, by and large. But as a decency, we don't evict people in the winter. What's the winter? Sukkot to Pesach. What if the landlord gave the tenant 30 days notice before Sukkot? Well, that's fine. However, if even one day of those 30 days pushes after Sukkot, whoops, you're into the no-move zone, like the no-spin zone. He can't evict them until after Pesach. Why? Because he's one day past Sukkot. But who provided that? You want to get rid of the guy after Pesach? You better give him 30 days notice. But I gave him 30 No, that was a long time ago. You've got to give him new notice. Now he qualifies. When does the above hold true? In regular cities, in normal living conditions, in mega cities, in big cities, there's a town, there's a city like a metropolis, and then there's a megalopolis, something mega, in a big city like New York, Los Angeles, Moscow, and so on. 
In big cities, winter, summer, it's all the same. What's the law? The law is you need a 12-month notice because big cities are hard to get rentals in and 12 months is acceptable. What 30 days is in smaller towns, one year is in bigger cities. So also a store, a business. Whether it's in smaller cities, bigger cities, a year, 12 months is the acceptable notice period. Just as the owner, landlord, has to inform the renter, listen, I need you out in 30 days or in 12 months. Also, the tenant needs to give the landlord notice. 30 days in regular cities, or 12 months in a bigger city. Why is that? Why would the renter have to give the owner notice? Obviously, elementary. In order that the landlord seek a new tenant. Because if a landlord sitting with a vacancy, he loses money. He needs the income to pay the mortgage. We don't want the owner's house to remain empty. What if the tenant did not give notice? And he can't leave. Why? Because there is no clear term of this lease. So we're going to assume it's month to month or year to year, whatever the deal is. So without the notice, he has to keep paying the rent. You have to give that one month or one year's notice, whatever the deal is. Now he goes on to say a very interesting law. We face this every day in life. What about raising the rent? If the economy is good and the rents go up, can the landlord raise the rent? What if the economy is bad and there's vacancies all over the place? Can the tenant drop the rent? He says, Even though the owner cannot evict the tenant. And the tenant can't leave. Before there is sufficient notice, 30 days, 12 months, or whatever the deal is, remember, there is no lease. It's month to month. What if housing rentals, the prices have soared? The price became more expensive. As Alfredo, my dear friend, says, very expensive. Yes, the owner can add, can raise the rent. They can tell the tenant, listen, my friend, you know rents have been booming in this neighborhood. Either pay the higher rent until you find something else, or you can leave right now. There's no reason the landlord should lose income, being that he doesn't have a lease. So also it works the other way. If prices dropped, and again, there's no lease, but it's month to month. So the tenant could come and drop the rent. You know, it's all about what we call in our world supply and demand. It's not our world supply and demand. It's a basic teaching in the Talmud. So the, the tenant could say, I want to drop the rent. The landlord could say, well, here, to the owner. Hey, either drop the rent, because that's what people are paying now, or I'm out of here. What if the house of the tenant fell? I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Let me go back. What if the house of the landlord became unusable? The landlord lived somewhere else, and his house fell. So now, the landlord is homeless. He can evict the tenant. The tenant will say, wait a minute, I need uh, notice, 30 days, 12 months. The landlord can say to the tenant, in the beginning, it doesn't make sense. You should dwell in my house until you find a place. I'm living outside. I'm homeless. It's my house. I understand you have rights in this house, but your rights are not greater than mine. I own the house. That is, if the owner of the house became homeless. My understanding is, all of this is in the month-to-month, no lease deal. What if the owner gives the house to his son for a wedding? Again, that was the culture. You get a house for a wedding. If he knows that his son is announcing his engagement in this and this time, or getting married in this and this time, why actually let him and he can give him advance notice for the idea, and he didn't. he can't evict him. Why? Because logic dictates you should have given advance notice. You knew your son was getting married in June. You could have told me. But if the young lady the son is going to marry just showed up, it's just a surprise to everyone. He's going to marry her immediately, if not sooner. The landlord can evict his tenant. Because it's not logical, not correct, not appropriate that a renter should live in this guy's house. When he needs a house to make the wedding party for his son, what should he go? Rent another house somewhere? Well, then Balabai, sister Bias, and the son of the owner should go rent a house. should make a house. This is not correct. It's his father's house. So therefore, we don't require the same level of notice. The closing paragraph of this chapter. If he sells the house, and the son already gave the house away to someone, or he bequeathed it to someone, bottom line is new owner. The new owner is either a buyer or a recipient of a gift or an heir. 
The new owner, the second guy, cannot evict the tenant until he gives him the same notice. Whether it's 30 days under certain circumstances, or advance notice of 12 months in other circumstances. Why is that? He's a new owner. The answer is because the new owner takes on the responsibilities of the old owner, the obligations. Because the tenant could say to him, I understand you're the new owner, but your definition of ownership can never be greater than the fellow from whom you received the right of ownership. End of chapter 6.